Luke chapter 6. Bible's in the back. I'm reading from the ESV. Are we read from the ESV? I'll be preaching from the ESV. If you don't have a Bible, grab one in the back and open up to Luke 6. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, take one with you. It's our gift to you this morning. Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. Just a quick review. Um, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has been proclaiming the kingdom of God has come. He has been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been healing with kingly authority and power, demonstrating that the king is here. The crowds of disciples are growing, have grown. The crowd of onlookers has grown. And the opposition against Jesus has also grown. The religious leaders of that day came from all over Judea and even as far as Jerusalem. If you remember, back in uh, a chapter or two before, they accused him of blasphemy. In chapter 6, verse 7, it says that the scribe and the Pharisees watched him, that's Jesus, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find the reason to accuse him. Verse 7 of chapter 6. Then down in verse 11 of chapter 6, it says the scribes and the Pharisees, religious leaders, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They're not talking about throwing a party. Okay? Last week we learned that while Jesus' popularity and opposition was growing and the, and the pressure of ministry was growing, increasing Jesus, the eternal Son of God, fully man, fully God, thought it would necessary to go up to the mountain to pray. To pray. To pray alone. Needing to meet with the Father. Needing wisdom from the Father. Asking for His will to be done. And the morning came, Jesus comes down and calls His disciples together and appoints and names and begins to prepare 12 men, apostles. We talked about that last week. Capital A. There are no such thing today. He calls these 12 who will form a new community. Nothing unfamiliar to the Jewish people. That they would take the message, apostolos. They have the, the authority to preach and to teach. We learn that in Mark and Matthew. So they, they were called, they were appointed in order that they can preach and have authority to cast out demons to heal every disease and every affliction. These 12 represent the foundations of the church. This is the 12 tribes of the Old Testament. Foundations of that nation. With Jesus also at this time in chapter 6, verse 17, we see that there's a crowd of disciples. Look at verse 17, verse 6. And a crowd, a great multitude of people came from Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, <coughs> excuse me, who came to hear him and, and to be healed of their diseases, to be set free from unclean spirits. We said Tyre and Sidon, they were Gentiles. They were those who opposed that nation. And, and of course, we're calling this series Mission to the World because Jesus is calling all nations, all tongues, all tribes to repent and believe on him. And then Jesus is demonstrating here on this, on this plane, on this level place, Demonstrating, mentoring, and teaching what the apostles were sent out to do as he heals, verse 19, uh, verse, excuse me, 18 and 19. He heals people of many diseases. And now today, Jesus is going to teach his disciples on what it means to follow him. What is this new community that he is forming? How is it to express itself 
in the world as disciples, as followers of Christ. And before we look at the, if you remember the, from the scripture reading, the four blessedness, the, the four uh, uh, blessedness and the four woes of judgment, before we get there, there are a couple of things I think we need to look at and see. I'm going to do a little bit longer introduction, not introduction, but part of this text, uh, that we need to understand before we look at the actual text itself. We want to properly understand this narrative or this um, part of the scripture, we need to understand a few things. And the first thing I want us to notice together is verse 20. Look with me, verse 20. It says, He, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on who? His disciples. Okay? Lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said. Okay, so who is Jesus addressing and talking to at this time? His disciples. Okay? Second, notice that the first declaration of blessedness, Jesus says, <clears throat> Because they have already inherited the kingdom of God. Okay, you see that? So he's talking to his disciples who have already inherited the kingdom of God, who identify, look down at verse 22, as the Son of Man, or on account of the Son of Man, right? His disciples inherited the kingdom, identify with the Son of Man. Which brings us to a very important word of our text, and that is the word blessed. Some Bible translation, maybe you have one in your hand, that's okay. We won't judge you. It's the word happy. Drives me a little crazy. The word happy. It's a translation of a Greek word, makarios, meaning blessed and translated happy. The problem with that translation of that Greek word is way too subjective to what is happening around us. Happiness is contingent on my circumstance. Happiness is contingent on my Feelings. Happiness comes from the root hap, which means chance. So happiness, or, or human happiness, is by chance, when everything is going my way. Jesus is not addressing what is happening in the life of his disciples circumstantially, but he's talking about what it is to be a blessed person. People ask that question. What does it mean to be blessed? Even if you're not religious, you ask that question. And everyone who asks that question finds true happiness somewhere, true blessedness somewhere, I should say. There are people who try to, to, to get blessedness in the accumulation of stuff. They, they're resting and, and, and believing that if they have enough things, they could deal with the burdens of life. Others would say true blessedness is in beauty or attractiveness, business success, status, influence. But how does one really and truly find blessedness and to be blessed? Blessedness, listen family, scripturally speaking, is at its heart based on objective truth that brings joy, that transcends circumstance. Let me say it again. It's on the screen, I know. At its heart is based on objective truth that brings a joy that transcends circumstances. How can one experience blessedness? I'm glad you asked. Roman, excuse me, Psalm 32. Very clear. Blessed is the one who. Transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, sin, 
rebellion, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessedness is, is being forgiven and free from pretense, from deceit. Divine blessedness is the inner joy. Listen, divine blessedness, not worldly, circumstance, happiness. Divine blessedness is the inner joy, serenity, peace, inner satisfaction and composure, which comes from knowing that we are right with God. That our sins have been forgiven. It is no longer keeping us alienated from a holy God. That Christ is our righteousness because we have no righteousness of our own. Our contentment is not the product of happenstance, but in God's loving kindness. It's not fate. It's infinite grace. John Stott. Happiness is a subjective state happiness, whereas Jesus is making an object of judgment about his people. True blessedness is when someone is graciously approved by God, end quote. So, it's important you know this. Jesus here in Luke chapter 6, in his announcement to his disciple, is making an objective statement about what God thinks of his followers, the followers of Jesus, not to somehow act and to live in a certain way in order to earn the blessings of God. These beatitudes refer to the one who, who is the object of grace and is joyfully content and satisfied because of God's grace. And out of that blessed objective truth of Christ, we are to live lives in a radically different way in which the world lives. If you mix that up, you're going to be running on a treadmill. Beatitudes refer to one who is the object of grace and is joyful, content, and satisfied because of it, and out of this, this blessedness, this objective truth of Christ, we are to live lives in a radically different way than the world does. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> if you get that wrong, you've got problems. You're not understanding what Jesus is saying to his disciples. And as this new community is being formed. So we're going to walk through these four things. Um, blessed, poor, and woe to the rich. I'm going to put them together for you right up on the screen. Uh, we'll, and um, blessed hungry, woe to the full, blessed weeping, woe of the laughing, and blessed rejection, woe to the popular. They're, they are uh, contradictory, they are, you know, uh, contrasting, I should say, to one another. So let's first look at this first blessed, verse 20a. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now we know that Jesus is not saying every one of his followers need to chase after poverty in order to be blessed. As if only those who are poor can have a, deeper, a deep relationship with Jesus. That's not what he's saying. The scripture is clear. All throughout the scripture you see the righteous and the unrighteous poor. And the righteous and the righteous. The, the unrighteous and the righteous poor. The unrighteous and the righteous rich. The heart is the issue when, when all is said and done. Poverty, riches, does not determine the heart, okay? Although Jesus will say in Luke, and I think it's important we recognize this, in Luke chapter 18, uh, he, he came, we'll get there, I don't know when, uh, but he, he came face to face with a very, very rich, extremely rich ruler. And the ruler went through all the commandments that he keeps. What he failed to realize is rich ruler did not keep the first two commands. I have no other God. Jesus says, one thing you still lack. All right, I, say, I hear you doing all the commandments, but 
one thing you lack, and we'll get to the first commandment that you violate. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. Why? He was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Right? You want to worship money? It's, it's hard. He says, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. J.C. Ryle. He said, we must take good heed that we do not misunderstand the Lord's meaning when we read these expressions. We must not for a moment suppose that the mere fact of being poor and hungry, sorrowful and hated, will entitle anyone to lay the claim to an interest in Christ's blessings. The poverty here spoken of is a poverty accompanied by grace. End quote. Jesus is looking out over his disciples. His apostles are with him. One of them is named Levi. We met him already. Matthew. He left the tax collector's booth to follow Jesus. A rather lucrative business. Jesus sees and recognizes the crowd of disciples' material lack and declares that they are blessed, not because of what they own, but because, look at the text, of what the kingdom, of what kingdom they belong to. Jesus saying that in spite of their present poverty, they were in possession of an everlasting kingdom. For yours is the kingdom of God. Present tense, now, indicative, it's real now in your life. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, and some of you community group leaders, maybe are, as, you, as you work through this passage in your community groups, you'll see that there's a Beatitudes in Matthew 5, where Jesus will add, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of God. And I don't, want, I don't think we should read that text, Matthew 5, right into this text right away, as if Jesus is saying that. I actually think they were two separate sermons. Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes, Jesus is up on the mountain. Jesus is speaking to a larger crowd. Uh, not only his disciples, but those who had just come to hear him. Here in Luke 6, like any other good preacher, I'm sure Jesus went from town to town, city to city, and didn't tell a parable once. I'm sure he changed it up, just like any preacher would do, and he's teaching something similar to the Beatitudes he taught on a Sermon on Mount. Now he's on the plain, he's on a level place. It's a different time. He's talking... Uh, there's some similarities, I get that, but he's saying, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are poor. Oftentimes we think of the poor, we think of those who, who, who's just lazy. I think, I, I think even more so today than even then. Lazy, unwilling to work, maybe caught up in addictions, drugs, alcohol, gambling, or something, they don't want to take care of themselves. And the Bible has a lot to say about those who are slothful, lazy, irresponsible. Paul tells the church in 2 Thessalonians 3, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Imagine saying that today. That's a person who's able to work. But the scriptures also teach that poverty comes to people not because they're lazy, irresponsible, but they are oppressed. The Bible talks about the oppression of rulers, governments. I won't go down that road. Tragedy. Maybe they're unable to work. Disaster, famine, drought, we see that in the, in the scriptures. Some actually take a, a vow of poverty to serve the Lord. 
And then we have to distinguish between the two, who is able to work, who refuses, and those who can't and we need to support. And the Bible has a lot to say about loving your neighbor who is unable, who's been through tragedy. But the point is that poverty is not blessed in and of itself, although many of them were, but the poor's vulnerability, Jesus is saying, can be a catalyst to drive them to the place where they recognize their lives are in God's hands. They are blessed because they trust that God is for them and they belong to him. Poverty can make disciples aware of their dependence on God and, and, and their, their lack of physical needs opens them up to the abundance of love and grace and joy and salvation. There can be joy, Jesus says, in their poverty. For everything contained in the kingdom is for them. For yours is the kingdom. You already received the kingdom. The poor are in the kingdom now, he says. The kingdoms of this world, he's saying, are going to pass away. But the kingdom of God remains forever. In other words, the disciples may be poor and with no earthly kingdom to claim, but the heavenly kingdom filled with glory belongs to those who follow Jesus. Listen, his disciples know they were poor. They didn't have much resources out on this hill. They must rely upon God. He's talking to them. He's talking to us. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have presently received your consolation. Now, as we go through the woes, it's not just judgment. The woes are judgment, but there's more to that word. There's more to the word than just judgment. It, it has to do with, with warning, a, a warning, a judgment, a warning, a call to repentance. It has to, the word can also have uh, a, a, a sense of compassion, lamentation, like God saying, stop, turn, stop running in disaster, stop resting in material things. And let's be honest, it, uh, the rich of this world are often self-reliant. Again, we're using broad categories, being people outside the kingdom and inside the kingdom is what we're talking about. Those who are rich in all, in all reality are as spiritually Helpless is the poor. What you have today doesn't change anything when your status before God and the righteousness you need that only God can give you. We're all poor in that sense. I think that's what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 5. But their material wealth of the rich can serve to blind them from the things that would make them aware of their spiritual neediness. They have everything. I don't need anything. As a result, many rich people miss out on the blessings of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In other words, Jesus is saying to his disciples who are poor, you're you, you better to be poor now, having a part in the coming kingdom than being rich now and having no part in the future kingdom. Again, Jesus is not speaking about everyone who has money per se, there are many godly, rich people in the Bible and people we meet. He's speaking to those, listen, he's speaking to people who seek their life, who seek their joy, who seek their blessedness only and primarily in material things. They don't realize how much they need Christ, how much their soul needs them. They're not dependent upon the God of our Savior. And it won't last. That's why they receive their consolation, their comfort, what? Only now. Now you have it. Now you have it. You received your consolation. In fact, those outside the kingdom of God who chase riches 
find security in riches, oftentimes are not only selfless or selfish, but many times they're looking to hoard and to pile on more, and they can be very neglectful of those who are poor, unable to work, and hurting. Again, not everybody. Hopefully not believers. Listen, if, you, if your ultimate rest, your ultimate comfort is in your possession, your IRA, your 401, when life ends and all is gone, there'll be no comfort for you. Woe to you, he says. How tempting it is to rely upon riches and material things for your blessedness, but your money, <laughs> my money, will outlive its usefulness in that day. All that, are left, all that is left apart from Jesus, he says, is woe to you. And the essential issue in this, in, in this first piece here is the judgment of the rich man's selfish focus on his material security versus the poor who, who find themselves dependent upon God, resting in the gospel. Blessed poor, woe to the rich. <coughs> Number two. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Notice the Lord adds the words now. Hungry now, full now, as it points to something beyond the immediate. Now you have that. In fact, it's a passive voice when it says, you shall be satisfied. So you're full now, and you shall be, pass, you shall, excuse me, be satisfied. Passive voice means that it is God doing the satisfying. It's a divine passive voice. God does the work. It is God who satisfies the blessed one. And because the verb is uh, the, uh, future tense, I believe it's pointing, you shall be, I'm going to be satisfied. There's going to be a time in which there'll be complete satisfaction. I think Jesus is pointing to a day when his disciples will inherit the kingdom and they'll be no more hungry. This banquet we see, uh, both we saw it in Isaiah, we'll see it in Revelation, of, of the feast of God's people in that day. But I also think it speaks about today. One commentator wrote this, we were made with a spiritual hunger for truth, an unfulfilled longing for eternity, and a desperate craving for the love that is at the heart of the universe. Only God can satisfy, and Jesus has promised that his disciples will be filled. We will drink deeply from the fountains of his grace. We will eat richly from the banquet of his word. We will find satisfaction in Christ alone, end quote. The same God who provides food for the hungry, especially the hungry for God, will give them grace. The psalmist writes, Oh God, my soul thirsts for you. My, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Remember, Jesus told the woman at the well what? Everyone who drinks of this water, listen, they're going to be thirsty again. Whatever the, whatever the water I give them to drink, they will never, double negative, never ever thirst again. The Lord I give them will dwell up, he says, in John 14, 4, and springs of eternal life. We went through John a long time ago. But during that sacrifice, as they were pouring water, on that final day of the, of the, of the um, festival, and Jesus stands up and says what? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, streams of living water will flow within him. The bread of life. All these verses. 
So I think this passage is primarily speaking about our hunger being satisfied in the kingdom, but there's something to be said about it now. The hunger and satisfaction that we have on this side of heaven as God blesses us through the gospel and we are satisfied in him. Drinking deeply, relying completely on Christ and the gospel. Woe, verse 25, who are full now, for you shall be hungry. The now full live in, a, in the fullness of what they have. They're satisfied desires now. But when judgment comes, look what it says. They'll be hungry. Hell for them will be this constant hungering, craving, never satisfied, always wanting. They had it in this life, and they will have nothing in the life to come because they have not trusted Christ. And maybe you're here today, have not trusted Christ. And you think you're full, you're going to go hungry. You can see, we don't understand words, these words of Jesus simply speaking to people who do or don't have enough to eat, which is what was common in that day, but they are full apart from God. They're going to experience now comfort and things that they have, but in the future they will go hungry. It was um, a man by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. He's a Danish theologian, philosopher. He's been credited to this story I want to share with you that really gets to the heart of being full now and hungry later. Listen to this story. A duck was flying with his flock in the springtime toward <laughs> northward across Europe. During the flight, he came down in a Danish barnyard where there were tame ducks. He enjoyed some of their corn. This duck stayed for an hour, then a day, then a week, then a month, and finally, because he relished the good fare and the safety of the barnyard, he stayed all summer. One autumn day, when the flock of wild geese were, were winging their way southward again, they passed over the barnyard, and their mate heard their cries. He stirred with a strange thrill of joy and delight, and with a great flapping of wing, he rose in the air to join his old comrades in the flight, but he found that his good fare had made him soft and heavy. He could not rise any higher than the eaves of the barn. So he dropped back down in the barnyard and said to himself, oh well, life's good here, I am safe. Food is good. Every spring and autumn when he heard the wild ducks calling, his eyes would gleam for a moment and he would begin to flap his wings. The next time the ducks heard the call of the wild, he lifted up his head excitedly, couldn't even get off the ground. Eventually he grew so satisfied with his life in the barnyard that the day finally came when the wild ducks flew over him and uttered their cry, but he paid not even the slightest attention to them. It could happen to you. It could happen to us. If you're here this morning, you continue to, to seek the pleasures, to find satisfaction in this world alone. You may someday, you may be saying someday, someday I'll fly with the people of God. I will walk with Jesus. But you're getting more and more caught up in the world, more and more full now, and then decide to stay a little longer, a little longer, a little longer. Eventually, you say, it's not even worth the effort. Come to Christ. Repent of your sins. Believe on him. For the woe is clear. People who feel that they are full now, in reality, in the end, will be eternally hungry. Hear the call of the gospel. Hear the call of Jesus to come and follow me. Number three, blessed, woe, blessed weeping woe of laughing. Blessed are you who will weep now, for you shall laugh. Jesus does not mean blessed are you that are miserable. God's not against laughter. He created me, okay? 
He invented laughter. Although some followers we know wouldn't crack a smile no matter what happened in their life. I feel bad for them. Oswald Sanders says, we, should we not see that lines of laughter about the eyes are just as much marks of faith as the lines of care and seriousness? Think about that for a minute. Could you be filled with faith, filled with the Spirit, and have laughter? I think you can. Jesus is not pronouncing gloom. Joyful heart, Proverbs says, good medicine. A glad heart makes a cheerful face. So what is Jesus saying? What is really Jesus saying? Blessed are you who weep now. Well, you have to look at the Old Testament. When the Old Testament talks about weeping, many times God's people were called to weep because they were persecuted, because they were exiled, they were distressed. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples, his followers, that they are to see life as it really is. The corruption, the pain, the brokenness, the sin, the rebellion of this world. He wants his disciples, his followers who are blessed to, to, to weep and then to laugh at appropriate times. We get to chapter 19, we'll see Jesus as he, as he enters into that final week. What does he do? He looks out over Jerusalem and he weeps for Jerusalem. Not only because they rejected the Prince of Peace, but because of the destruction that was going to come upon them as he looks to that future. This is opposite of what that false teacher loves to say, Joel Osteen, right? You can have your best life now. Like, yeah, then what comes is a woe later. Do we acknowledge the brokenness when we see people who are separated from Christ, who are, who are running away from Christ, who won't come to Christ, who will spend eternal life away from Christ, in death and hell? Do we weep for the sorrows of injustices of our world? The murder of the unborn child, the abuse of children. Do we, do we weep over betrayals and uh, uh, rejection, over hate, over lies, over divisions, over what's going on? Does it just get us angry or do we weep over them? I just read this week how the Assistant Secretary for Health Rachel Levine promised that medically changing kids' gender will soon be normalized. The mutilation of children will be normalized. That's something to weep over. Not just get angry over, but to weep and to mourn. Are we people who are sensitive to evil, to the world's rebellion, against God's coming judgment? Are we weeping for those who don't know him? And praise God, that pain is reversed into eschatological end-time joy for you shall, you shall laugh. We see in the, in the Bible this, this mourning and turning to laughter in the, in the coming kingdom. We weep now, we look forward to eternal joy when we be with Jesus because of his death, burial, and resurrection. Yet those who says who laugh now, will, it won't last. Look what it says in verse 25. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall, what? You shall mourn and weep. You shall mourn and weep. I went too far, didn't I? Can you go back one? Yeah. Kent Hughes. These are those who are silly, shallow, and superficial. Laughing now, that's what he's talking about. When it's time to get serious. Whenever anyone speaks to them about spiritual things, they laugh it off like a joke. They mock God, scorning his word and ridiculing his followers. So yeah, laughter can be positive, it can be the joy of one's heart, and laughter can be negative. Uh, when uh, Lamentations 1, 7, 1, chapter 1, verse 7, talks about those who are laughing and mocking God's people because of the destruction that came upon them. That's the laughter he's talking about here. You shall mourn and you shall weep. You want to laugh now? Mock the things of God, you shall mourn and you shall weep. 
And we know what that means. Mourning and weeping, right? Gnashing of teeth. In the end, there's only sorrow and, and, and rejection of Jesus will come, not laughing, but weeping. A day will come when the king of righteousness will come, establish his righteous kingdom, and followers of Christ will enter into it rejoicing. Yet those who would rather delight and laugh in a world of rebellion, ignoring the sin, ignoring the rebellion against a holy God, they find themselves in a world, in the end, weeping. Find that they were wrong, and their weeping and mourning will last forever. Jesus is drawing these contrasts for you this morning. If you're blessed and you're part of the kingdom, and this is how we are, this is how we are to act, how we respond. But if you're a part of those woes, it is a call. It is a call to turn. It is a call to repent. It, it, is, it is a call of the heart of God to see you not go in that direction, but come to him. I hope you hear that this morning as we end with number four. Blessed, rejected, and woe to the popular. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil, account, as, as evil on account of the Son of Man. Right? So Jesus is talking about one specific suffering. There's a lot of suffering in Scripture, but this one is specific. One kind of suffering. It is for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Right? It's following Jesus, sharing in his suffering, is, is now he's saying is a mark of true blessedness and discipleship. The disciple is not above his master, right? Therefore, it's not surprising that Christ has called us to suffer as he suffered. It is a joy and a sign of his grace many times as we suffer for him. It, it, it's not fun to be hated. Oh, I, I just love being hated. It's not fun to be hated. I, I get that. It's not fun to be rejected, excluded, reviled, spurned, reviled and spurned, mocking and insults. No one enjoys that. But one thing we cannot do, family, we cannot take this verse, you're not allowed to take this verse and claim it if you're rude, insensitive, intolerable, there are those who name the name of Jesus, but unfortunately, they're hated and rejected because they're obnoxious, self-righteous and proud, judgmental and lazy, irresponsible. That doesn't count. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He said you must be connected to and resemble Christ who are none of those things. He's addressing his disciples who encounter hardship priced up precisely because they're following in the footsteps of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. I read also, I'm full of stories this week. I read a, a, a late author by the name of Joseph Bailey, um, a satire he wrote. This is funny. It's called The Gospel Blimp. You can look it up. It's about a small town. It's a satire. It's a story. He wrote it. it it's about a small town eager to share their faith, and began with a gospel blimp. And, and, they, and they went up in the blimp, and they went back and forth across the town with scripture writing across it, dropping boss, gospel bombs on people in their yards. At first, the townspeople put up with the intrusion, but their tolerance changed to hostility when the blimp's owner installed a loudspeaker and began assaulting the people with gospel broadcasts. The locals had enough 
and the local papers, newspapers runs an editorial. For some weeks now, our metropolitan has been treated to the spectacle of a blimp with an advertising sign attached to the rear. The sign does not plug cigarettes or bottled beverages, but the, the religious beliefs of a particular group in our midst. The people of our city are notably broad-minded, and they have good-naturedly submitted to this attempt to proselytize. But last night, a new refinement, some would say a, an abasement, uh, abasement, was introduced. We refer, of course, to the airborne <laughs> sound truck, the airborne sound truck, the invader of our privacy, the destroyer of communal peace. That night, the glimpse is sabotaged, and the Christians all call out persecution. Let us never be persecuted. And say it's because we, we are devoted to loving our God and be really persecuted for the lack of love. But make no mistake about it, right? Persecuting is going to happen. We've been talking about this over the past verse when we were in Isaiah. When, when we stand on God's truth, not self-righteously, convictedly, we stand on the word of God. We disagree with the world's interpretation of certain events. We, we stand against the worldview that people hold, and we hold to a biblical worldview. We'll be hated, we'll be rejected. We will be. When we try and love others, listen, when we try and love others, when love is defined by the scripture, not by the culture, people will revile and reject you and spurn your name. Expect mocking. Expect insult. Expect insults. Jesus said, remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is great in his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Paul told young Timothy, encouraged him, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Lovingly standing on truth, lovingly holding to the scripture as your authority, the worldview according to the biblical worldview in a loving manner will still get you rejected and hated, reviled and spurned. Expect it. Expect it. Verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For, their, for so their fathers did the false prophets. Recently we studied the book of Isaiah. We witnessed God's rebuke of these false teachers and these bad leaders and how much they loved these false teachers. They loved these bad teachers. They, they would pour out the praise on the teachers who would give them what they wanted to hear. In many cases, these false prophets, these false teachers were what? Approved. Large approval. Not that it's wrong for people to speak kindly of us. I mean, it says in Timothy, we must be uh, thought of well by outsiders and we don't fall into disgrace. But the issue is, are we mainly and primarily people pleasers or are we mainly and primarily trying to please the Lord? We cannot please everybody. Not only you singularly, but we as a church are not going to please everyone. J.C. Ryle again, to be universally popular is the most unsatisfying, uh, satisfactory symptom. To be universally popular is the most unsatisfactory unsatisf symptom, and one of which a minister of Christ should always be afraid. It may well make him doubt whether he is faithfully doing his duty and honestly, listen, declaring the counsel, the whole counsel of God. So 
It's going to happen. If you're following Jesus, living like Jesus, there'll be some folks who will not speak well of you. And they won't speak well of Christ either. That's what I find. I find if, you, if you're loving Jesus, being persecuted for righteousness' sake, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the Son of Man, then those who are persecuting and saying those things against you hate Christ and make it evident. In every age, in every culture, there'll be those who call on false teachers to come and give them what their itching ears want to hear. And as, uh, as unpopular as this may sound, sometimes things that are growing and growing and growing are actually God's judgment against them. Woe to you. Laugh now, shall mourn later. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did the false prophets. Hmm. So let us end this way. Let's go to the next slide. My, my uh, iPad is not working. The very last slide. We'll, go, we'll end here in verse 23. What does he say? Rejoice. Rejoice in that day, verse 23. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did the prophets. So you got the false prophets that they love, and you got those who are rejected. In that day means in the day you're rejected, in the day you're excluded, in the day you're reviled and spurned like the real prophets were. On that day, rejoice. Imperative, it's a command. Not only is it a command, it's a passive voice again. It is God that is going to infuse you with rejoicing as you look to the Son of Man, as you relish in the gospel, as you keep your eyes focused on him, feet in the word of God. He says, rejoice. Rejoice. Given to you, not self-produce. The source of joy is, 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 is God himself. He will reward us. Look, in heaven there'll be a great reward. And the foundation and source of all our uh, uh, joy as followers of Christ is not being poor, it's not being hungry, it's not being weeping or rejected. Although we can lean on one another, the comfort comes and our source of joy is God himself promises us, who promises an eternal kingdom. You see, family, the blessed ones whose sins are forgiven, sins are covered that we saw in Psalm 32, that pure joy we get from having our sins forgiven as, 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 as our, when washed away, tells us that our destinies are determined not by sin and sorrow or Satan, but by the eternal triumphant God who rescues and saves and cleanses and washes and gives us an inheritance of the kingdom. The world values are not our values. The reversal portrayed in the Beatitudes in the world reflect the idea that the one with the most toys actually loses. God's blessings rest on him. God's call, Jesus calls to radically recalibrate how we think about these things, how we are to live now to be blessed. The default human heart, the default of the human heart always rests in the things we have, the things we see, the things we, we could hold. But Jesus warns us that you want to make yourself at home with this world and all the things of this world, and in the end, disastrous consequences for those who won't come into the kingdom, will not come into the kingdom. We have to choose our allegiance. We have to choose our ultimate joy. Either it is of this world or it has come from our God. So how can we continue, and let me end this way. Give me two more minutes. How can we continue, how can we choose to continue to live in this blessed condition. How do, we, how do we stay rooted in the gospel 
of this blessed condition of God's grace and God's love and be, and be resting, living out the gospel when we're poor, when we're hungry, when we're weeping, when we're hated, even when we're rejected. I'll tell you, keep looking to Christ. Keep looking to Christ and the gospel. Remember Jesus, falsely arrested, beaten, flogged, crown of thorns placed on his head, stripped of his clothes, hung on a Roman cross, poor as poor can be. Foxes have holes, the birds of the nest have uh, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man, he said, has no place to lay his head. Six hours, thirsty and hungry, hanging on a cross, taking our sin upon himself as our substitute. And then he cries out, I thirst. As the white, hot wrath of God is poured out on him. He was hated, he was rejected, he was reviled, but the ultimate rejection came when the Father turned his face and abandoned him, and Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the sin is poured out on him, as God's wrath is poured out on him, and he did that family for you and for me so that we can be spiritually rich in our inheritance in the kingdom. For our sake he, God the Father, made him Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. He did that so we could be satisfied with his eternal love. He did it so we can experience everlasting joy. He did it so that we could be eternally received in his eternal grace. Rest in him, family. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing a song that Pastor Ricky picked out called Jesus is Better. It is my prayer for you and for me as we respond to this song that we, we relinquish our grip on the world and that which is seen, and we cling to Christ. There is no other so sure and steady. My hope is held in your hands. In my sorrow, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. In every victory, Jesus is better. All my comfort, Jesus is better. All my riches, Jesus is better. My soul declaring, Jesus is better. Our song eternal, Jesus is better. If you have never come to faith, now's the time. This world will pass. Your money will pass. Your fullness will pass. Your satisfaction in this world will pass. Jesus is the answer and will fill you, forgive you, bring you into himself. You need to turn from your sin, repent and believe on him. And family, whatever's holding us down as we respond with this song, my prayer, our prayer, is that we relinquish it to Jesus and walk with him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for music as we sing the gospel. Help us, God, to keep our eyes fixed upon you as we let go of the things of this world and cling to Jesus, our eternal God and Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.